So on behalf of Chess, I'd like to welcome you to the December 2018 podcast. I'm Kyle Hogarth from the University of Chicago, editor of the podcast section. Thanks for joining us today. What's going to be another terrific conversation. My first guest is Dr. Emily Henkel from the Oregon Health and Sciences University, PSU School of Public Health in Portland, Oregon. And she's here to talk about her article, Bronchiectasis Patient Characteristics and Healthcare Utilization History in U.S. Medicare Enrollees with Prescription Drug Plans, 2006 through 2014. Emily, thanks for joining us today. Yeah, thank you for having me. Also on the phone with us is my next guest, Professor James Chalmers from the Nine Wells Hospital, University of Dundee in the UK, and he's here to talk about his accompanying editorial, New Insights into the Epidemiology of Bronchiectasis. James, thanks for spending some time with us. Thanks very much for the invitation. Okay, so you know, Emily and, and James as well, give us, give us some background. Um, you know, what were you trying to accomplish? You know, th- this was a huge undertaking when it was a read through the methodology of your paper. And so you know, I'm sure you just didn't do it for fun. So what were you, what's the background here uh, as to why you were hunting for this? Uh, sure. So um, to start, the uh, prevalence of bronchiectasis it has been hard to estimate. We know that it is increasingly common. Um, but we don't really understand how common it is and how widespread it is in the general population. Um, the prevalence of bronchiectasis in the U.S. is much higher than we previously thought. Um, as part of another study, we requested uh, Medicare data from all patients in the U.S. who had at least one bronchiectasis uh, claims code and were amazed, actually surprised, at how many patients were part of that population. And so we wanted to take a closer look at who those patients were, um, what other diagnoses they might have, what their healthcare utilization looked like um, around the time of diagnosis. Okay, excellent. And I mean, James, you have the same thoughts in regards to this, this kind of, for lack of a better word, evolving problem of bronchiectasis. And, and I think sort of our, um, you know, everyone in I think kind of agrees it seems to be more common, but we're we're stuck with not a lot of numbers, I think, to always wrap our head around. Absolutely, that's right. So we've seen in recent years uh, numbers from Europe, so from the UK and from Germany, for example, showing uh, rapidly increasing prevalence of bronchiectasis, but we haven't had many estimates of prevalence from the U.S. And so what's really important about this study is it does give us a benchmark now of how common bronchiectasis is in the in the population in the United States, um, and it is much more common than than we previously thought. Estimates 10 to 15 years ago were in the range of 52 per 100,000, and we're now comfortably 10 times that in the United States. So I think this is a really important contribution illustrating just how common bronchiectasis now is in our clinical practice. So, so Emily, let's, that, that's a great teaser. So, why don't you uh, let's let's hear what you found and and, and tell tell everyone who's listening, obviously, um, what you accomplished. It obviously was a, a monumental feat and and uh, of work and uh, between you and your group. And and then you obviously found some, I think, very fascinating and interesting data that that obviously we need to hear about. Yeah, sure. Uh, so, we were able to identify 250,000 patients with bronchiectasis across the entire. Um, time frame of the study, which was about eight years worth of data from Medicare. Uh, the average annual prevalence, um, we were only able to calculate the prevalence for the last three years um, because we needed the underlying population uh, in order to calculate that. Um, so the underlying um, population 
sorry, the annual prevalence from 2012 through 2014 was about 700 per 100,000 persons. Um, and just to put that into perspective, that's much more common, of course, than previously known. But it's about 10% of the number of patients who have um, COPD, which is by far, you know, the most common uh, lung disease. Um, our newly diagnosed... Oh, sorry, go ahead. Um, no, I think that was just background noise. <laughs> that's a good point. Oh, sorry, okay. <laughs> newly diagnosed patients were a mean of 75 years old. So again, we are looking in our Medicare population, which is patients over age 65 years of age. Um, patients with bronchiectasis are predominantly female, um, 65%. They're also predominantly white and non-Hispanic, about 85%. Um, and then when we looked back at patients who were newly diagnosed, um, so that means we were able to follow them for a year in Medicare prior to that first diagnosis. 12% um, had been hospitalized for respiratory infections in that prior year. Um, and interestingly, 51% had a dual diagnosis of COPD. And so then after that, we wanted to look a little bit uh, more closely at those groups, um, patients who did not have a diagnosis of COPD alongside the bronchiectasis um, compared to patients who had that dual diagnosis. Um, and what we saw is that the patient groups are very different. Um, and I'll just also add, we know that bronchiectasis is a very heterogeneous disease, um, but we don't really understand how important um, our common diagnoses of COPD might be in relation to bronchiectasis. Um, and so I think sh looking at the patients who have both of these diagnoses is um, very important. The patients who have both COPD and bronchiectasis have different characteristics and different healthcare utilization. They're more likely to have been hospitalized for respiratory infections during that baseline period. They're much more likely to be treated. Um, which, you know, we can talk about a little bit later may or may not be a good thing, um, depending on how good that treatment is. Um, and they're just, in general, much uh, sicker. And so I think it's just something that's important to keep in mind when patients have a bronchiectasis and COPD diagnosis, um, that it's important to treat and take care of the patient's uh, bronchiectasis, not just focus on the COPD so, so James, what do you think? I mean, you obviously read the paper and and um, and wrote uh, your thoughts and along with the editorial. Um, would you care to expand on this and and, and to help? Because uh, I think Emily brings it up. There's a lot of clinical context that's implied with this kind of information. Yeah, I so I I think there's a number of really important points that come out of this work. It's really great work, and Emily and her colleagues are to be commended for for publishing this. Um, the first point is around the prevalence, and I think. Um, Emily gave us a really great statistic there that will be quite surprising to a lot of clinicians, which yep. is that in, in the U.S., there's one bronchiectasis patient for every 10 patients with COPD. If you think about just how common COPD is, that means there's an unbelievable number of bronchiectasis patients in the U.S., uh, much more common than we thought it was. Uh, it, this is a disease that was an orphan disease in, in the U, classified as an orphan disease. It's clearly not an orphan disease now. Um, right. this, is a very this is a very common disease, um, and we need to be much more aware about it than we have been in the past. Um, but I think these results around COPD are really fascinating, the fact that the majority of patients in this study had a previous history of, of COPD of some kind. 
Um, and I'd, I'd like to invite Emily to speculate on, on what she thinks about that, whether she thinks these patients do have a, a genuine COPD diagnosis or whether there may be some complexity to, that, to the relationship between those two entities. What do you think? Yeah, Emily? exactly. No, no, I, I would love to expand on that. So, you know, one of the, the, the key points about this paper and one of its limitations, of course, is that we're talking about diagnosis codes. Um, so, you know, we are unable to go into um, review patients' charts and confirm whether they truly have COPD or, or bronchiectasis or whether it is a combination of both. You know, one of my thoughts just thinking about diagnosis is that certainly in the U.S., the COPD diagnostic code is used as a screening code. It may be used when patients need to have that CT scan. Um, it's just because it's so common, it make, would make sense to me that, that physicians might be using that code without it being associated with an actual diagnosis. Um, uh, but I would say, you know, two things. One is we're able to look at smoking history. Um, so about half of our patients that have that COPD and bronchiectasis diagnosis do have a smoking history that's recorded in the, the medical um, claims database. Um, so there are different ways that we, different algorithms that we can generate to look a little bit more closely at our COPD patients. We can also look forward in time. So this paper is just a snapshot. What I really would be interested in doing is looking forward as well. So if you have patients with that COPD diagnosis, then they get a bronchiectasis diagnosis. Do they continue to use a COPD diagnosis? or do they continue to use a bronchiectasis diagnosis moving forward um, at a vis given visit? Um, because physicians, you know, will select one or the other. You don't typically put both down when someone is just coming in for a physician visit. Well, and I, one, of the, one of the thoughts I had, I had when I was reading through your papers, by your, the definition that you all used to clarify the bronchiectasis diagnosis, which was arguably conservative, but in a good way, because you excluded anybody with a bronchiectasis diagnosis that hadn't been seen by a pulmonologist. And it was, I, obviously, I think your thought process was to sort of say this was a more refined diagnosis. But that would make an argument then that if the diagnosis of COPD is being applied by a pulmonary physician who applied the bronchiectasis, that at least you'd hope for a slightly higher diagnostic certainty with that application. Yeah, that's a good point. And we did use um, two codes, so two outpatient codes for the COPD diagnosis here. There are some additional um, um, algorithms that we could use that also take into account medications that are commonly prescribed for um, COPD. But I think one of my um, goals, too, is to step back and try to understand patients who are newly diagnosed who may not be being treated um, for either their COPD or their bronchiectasis at the time of diagnosis. You know, they're being evaluated. Um, and so I think it's important for this type of paper where we're looking at prevalence and trying to understand the disease patterns in the, the U.S. that we have stepped back and that we're able to um, look at the population that might be more likely to have the disease, and then we are able to move forward with different algorithms depending on what our study question is. James, what do you think? 
Yeah, and I, I would agree with that. So I think that uh, from a population level, what you want to know is in this population that carries a label of COPD, a lot of those patients actually have bronchiectasis. Uh, this type of study doesn't allow you to validate how accurate the diagnosis of COPD is, but that doesn't matter because that's not the, the research question. The research question is in this population, how many of them carry this code? And it points right. us towards it points us towards the reality of clinical practice that I see so many patients coming to my bronchiectasis clinic who have uh, previously been given a diagnosis of COPD, in some cases correctly, in some cases incorrectly. Um, and so what it, what it highlights is the importance of being aware that that patient that the primary care physician may have labeled with COPD, particularly if they don't have a smoking history or they haven't responded appropriately to COPD therapy, the, the true diagnosis may be bronchiectasis. And this this data is totally believable uh, in view of what I see in clinical practice, that this code gets attached to many patients that present with respiratory symptoms at an older age. It's exactly what you would expect. Right. The, the, the recent exacerbation that might have even landed them into the medical center uh, was labeled as a COPD exacerbation because there was not a, a deeper evaluation for the actual diagnosis of the bronchiectasis, but now the label has been applied and usually carried forward. Yeah, because I think, I think we as respiratory physicians are very aware of bronchiectasis, but the, the more general population sees a 65-year-old female being admitted to hospital with a chest infection. They maybe hear some wheeze, hear a history of chronic respiratory symptoms. I think their natural reaction would be to label that probable exacerbation of COPD um, until the, the investigations are done. And I think that's what we're seeing in the, uh, what we're seeing in the electronic medical records. And we see the same thing in UK electronic medical records. So um, Jenny Quinton colleagues published in the European Respiratory Journal a couple of years ago, about 60% of patients in the UK in their electronic medical records had an attached diagnosis of either asthma or COPD uh, prior to the diagnosis of bronchiectasis. Yeah. The um, rate of the prevalence of bronchiectasis um, you know, in the paper, you describe that non-CF bronchiectasis is high, but seems to be stable, at least over that three-year observed period. But the real question is, obviously, the prior estimates in the U.S. have been much lower. Um, so, and, and then we could even make the argument that the very strict definition that you used as part of your research maybe even was potentially an underestimate that the problem's even, you know, quote, worse than we think it is. Do we think that bronchiectasis is truly on the rise, or is this that we're more in tune with it, that in the old days it was just, ah, it's COPD exacerbation, and, you know, here's some steroids and antibiotics and an inhaler, move on, and that we're now, because we're doing more chest imaging, more detailed chest imaging, it, the threshold for, for a CT scan has obviously dropped. It's, you know, almost commonplace to, to get one as opposed to uh, in, the, in the prior research days. I'm just curious, uh, you know, I'd love to hear your thoughts. Uh, There's probably not a direct answer. Do we, do we think we're having a higher recognition of something that's probably always been there and maybe it's not rising as quickly as we think? Or is it really that we're seeing a steady rise in the prevalence of bronchiectasis? Well, uh, you know, that is a great question. Um, you know, my feeling is that it is a combination of detection, as you mentioned, the CT scan uh, technology and just the sheer quantity of CT scans that are ordered in the U.S., right. um, but also awareness of disease. Um, so I work with the COPD Foundation in the U.S., which mm -hmm. 
uh, both has a bronchiectasis research registry, but also has uh, information now available online um, for physicians and patients uh, to understand more about bronchiectasis and the, the diagnosis. So I don't know that patients necessarily are driving this, um, but certainly there is more awareness of bronchiectasis and the importance of its diagnosis as an entity, you know, of its, on its own. Um, James, what do you think? So I, I agree. I think most of the increase that we're seeing is addressing historical underdiagnosis of bronchiectasis. Um, a lot of it is patients that have previously been misdiagnosed with other conditions now getting the CT scan, getting recognition of the fact that they've got this condition called bronchiectasis. Um, I would speculate there may well be some underlying increase in, in overall true prevalence of bronchiectasis because some of the underlying causes of bronchiectasis also seem to be on the rise. Um, so we've seen across multiple countries increase in the prevalence of non-tuberculous mycobacteria that seem to be genuine increases in prevalence, and that's an important cause of, of bronchiectasis. And as patients are, are less likely to die from diseases like cardiovascular disease and um, some malignancies, we're seeing increases also in the prevalence reported for things like connective tissue diseases in the elderly, so the, and these are associated with bronchiectasis. So I think there's a, a combination of a rapid increase due to recognition of the disease and probably some underlying increase in the prevalence because of an increase in the prevalence of associated conditions. Well, and I don't know what the trends are even right now for COPD. Um, I know it obviously it increased for a long time, but I think we're also right now at, at either at the peak or we, yeah, the number of patients with COPD has certainly increased over time um, with the smoking um, cessation in the last 20 years that may actually decrease again. But for right now, there are still so many patients with COPD. And now that we know that bronchiectasis is associated with COPD, it also makes sense to, to see more, um, more diagnosis of bronchiectasis. I think it'd be curious to to, uh, to to add to your data and and to your findings. Um, registries associated with lung cancer screening. So by definition, um, you're, they don't have to necessarily have obstructed lung disease, but they do have a significant smoking history, and they are obviously undergoing serial scans. Um, bronchiectasis is going to be something that should be commented upon, you know, presence or not presence. Um, obviously, beyond the, the simple looking for nodules, but it, it would be a very similar target population, though some of it clearly under the age of the Medicare population. Um, but uh, it would be uh, another way to tease out, because um, uh, at least if someone's undergoing a lung cancer screening, um, there is a smoking history prevalent, um, and there should be better clinical records associated with it, in particular the presence of underlying obstructed lung disease by spirometry. Right. Well, and one of the things that I'm very interested in is you know, we do a lot of work and we have uh, great registries in Europe and in the U.S. and Australia and all around the world for bronchiectasis patients. But you're going to get the more advanced patients typically. If they're getting to a, a research center and they're being enrolled in the study, most likely they're coming in with some recent history of exacerbation 
Um, and so I'm very interested, as you said, in, in identifying patients early on. When does the bronchiectasis develop and how do you prevent patients from then having some of the sequelae like exacerbations or getting those in, that first infection that leads to the next and the next? Um, so it'd be really great to have a better understanding of when the disease develops in patients um, and when is a good time to intervene. Oh, I, I agree, but I think um, I would sound a, a note of caution regarding the interpretation of what we're going to get from CT screening. Um, we know that in the, the elderly population in particular, um, a raised bronchial arterial ratio, which is the measure that we use to diagnose radiological bronchiectasis, is really quite a common finding. It's about 20% of patients over the age of 65, um, smaller percentage of, of those under 65. But in most cases, those that are incidentally found on CT are completely asymptomatic patients. And we have no data suggest that those patients will then go on and develop symptoms. So our, our method of, of currently diagnosing radiological bronchiectasis, which is the ratio of the bronchus to the adjacent artery, um, does pick up quite a lot of false positives. And so it's the same old story that when you start see, doing a lot of CT scans, there is the risk that you pick up a lot of abnormalities that are not necessarily clinically significant. So at the moment we only at the moment we only classify true bronchiectasis as a clinical entity when there's both radiological dilatation and also the symptoms that go with it. There is a concern that with CT being so sensitive, we may pick up some people that have a bit of radiological dilatation but may never develop symptoms and we don't know what the clinical um, the clinical meaningfulness is of that radiological finding. No, that's an excellent point, James. Um, one of the things I'm also struck by uh, the importance of your data here, Emily, is um, you know research dollars and, and clinical resources follow you know the rates of diseases and the and the utilization of healthcare resources. And you know if a disease state in the U.S. has now uh, you know which has been historically very underestimated and now has seen a large jump and and arguably even from a more conservative view, so it's potentially even a larger number. And as James said, not an orphan disease anymore. There's a strong argument, obviously for, you know, where the clinical concern needs to be, especially when it comes to both research dollars and then clinical dollars. But then in your paper, you do highlight the high use of services that the average patient, you know, consumes here, especially when the diagnosis of COPD is also present. Um, I don't know if you wanted to expand on that. Um, no, I think that as we looked back over what was happening in the year prior to diagnosis, yeah, we were... Um, very surprised that the utilization is higher with these, uh, these lung diseases than it is for the general Medicare population, you know, looking both at prior hospitalizations um, as well as um, outpatient visits. Um, and I'm not a health economist, but I do believe that, you know, the hospitalizations we know are associated with, with high costs. And so, again, to me, identifying patients who are either have their bronchiectasis that's un undiagnosed. Um, it's important to catch that diagnosis, especially if they're already coming in with inpatient hospitalizations. Um, and then what I was interested as well is taking this and then looking forward to see what's happening in that following year once they have that bronchiectasis diagnosis. Is that helping to um, 
you know, decrease the number of hospitalizations. It might be increasing. You know, we're not going to be able to say whether the diagnosis itself has that impact, but we do want to understand what happens after patients have that diagnosis. And I think this claims data is useful for that. Agree. James, what do you think? I mean, would this potentially help us to, you know, when I'm thinking of bronchiectasis guidelines and need for better studies of interventions on the bronchiectasis side, uh, being able to help define that there's a larger population here that we should see some resources geared towards this so we could design some better studies to give us better evidence-based guidelines. I agree. I think this is a really important contribution from that. Uh, standpoint, and I'll tell you why. It's because it's based around the, the whole of the population rather than very carefully selected severe populations, which is what we've had in the past. So I, I'm like Emily. I, I have to put up the disclaimer that I'm not a health economist. But, but just to me, seeing the data in Emily's paper that more than one in 10 of the patients were hospitalized, they're going to be consuming a huge amount of healthcare resources. And this isn't, as I mentioned, in a selected, severe tertiary care population, which is where most of our bronchiectasis studies come from. This is in a general Medicare population, um, uh, unselected. And so that suggests that the, the, the average patient with bronchiectasis is consuming a lot of healthcare resources. They're having important exacerbations that are costing the healthcare system money. And it argues for the need to prioritize research into better treatments, particularly that can prevent exacerbations, which is where the majority of the, the healthcare spend is and where a, a, an awful lot of the morbidity and mortality comes from. Well, and also just, you know, not just talking, that's the, you know, economic implications, but I think for patients too, um, I've spent a lot of time over the last few years working with patients and patient advisors on some of our bronchiectasis um, studies and it, for them, it's not just the inpatient admission that is important. It's these acute respiratory infections. It's the constant, you know, symptoms. It's the constant antibiotics. It's not wanting to be out in public and be with family members um, because they're afraid of these infections. So that's, again, where when I look at this population, you know, the idea of finding ways to prevent those future infections to me seems like the most important thing uh, for the bronchiectasis patient. Yeah, completely agree. Uh, and this paper really helps us towards understanding that. I think it was also nice to see that the data, there'd always been this, and I think James, you talk about it in your editorial, this using the old estimates, this sort of, why are the numbers so different in North America compared to, or at least within the U.S., compared to Europe? Um, and given the, you know, the findings that Emily found, there's, a, uh, with the predominantly uh, non-Hispanic Caucasian, there's, you know, some amount of a shared genetic heritage. And so that the prior, like, discrepancies between the numbers, to see them become a little more harmonized here, I think is also, you know, makes the data that much stronger because we can see, uh, you know, there's, relatively speaking, some similarities here across the, the pond. Um, so I was very much um, reassured by this paper in terms of it, it tracks with exactly what we've seen in UK data uh, published, Spanish data published, even the characteristics of the patients, their healthcare utilization, um, all looks very similar to what we've seen in Europe. So I don't think there's anything special about US, European, Australian 
patients with bronchiectasis, I think what we're seeing is that our populations are really relatively similar. They all have a high burden of disease. The disease is, pro is common worldwide. Um, it's not just concentrated in one particular healthcare system. And even I've commented in the editorial some of Emily's data around the prevalence of non-tuberculous mycobacteria seemed very similar to what's been reported in, in Europe and, and Australasia. So I think, I think we're seeing a consistency, in fact, um, across multiple countries that this is rising. The etiologies across our different countries are, are similar with some differences in microbiology and, and others. Um, but that, that helps us in planning things like randomized controlled trials because we know that patients that we get in North America will look similar to patients that we see in Europe and, uh, and in other parts of the world. So again, I, I think I find this very reassuring from a disease understanding standpoint. Agree. Agree. So, guys, we've been talking a while, and I want to be respectful of your time and our listeners' times. Um, final thoughts or things that we didn't talk about? You know, you know, when you both agreed to, to do a podcast, and, you know, you probably mentally are like, well, maybe he'll ask me about this, <laughs> and then I failed to do so. So is there any other sort of things you wanted to discuss or key points you wanted to make? And otherwise, I'll, I'll take kind of your closing final thoughts. Emily. Just looking over some notes here. Right? <laughs> <laughs> I think we've covered most of what I have. Um, no, I think I'm. I think I'm okay. <laughs> Excellent. Okay for my closing thoughts. James, what do you think? So I'll I'll just finish off by again uh, praising Emily and her collaborators on a really important study and. Um, that, that group has made a number of important contributions to understanding the epidemiology of bronchiectasis recently. So um, it's great that we're all we're all now making progress in our understanding of this disease. So um, kudos to Emily and her collaborators and to Chest for publishing the paper. Absolutely, Emily. Did, did you want, did you come up with a final yeah. thought there? Or? No, I think my my, my <laughs> final thought is just yeah. I hope that this paper helps to stimulate um, future research, and we certainly plan to um, use this data uh, and look forward for these patients. Uh, looking cross-sectionally, you know, is not enough. You also want to follow them forward in time, um, and we're very much looking forward to understanding bronchiectasis in the general population. Fantastic. Well, both of you, thanks so much. This was perfect. This was a, a wonderful discussion. And, and, and again, congratulations to you, Emily, and your colleagues for, uh, for this fantastic work. Thank you so much for your time, Great. both of you. Thank you.